Hey listeners, Dennis here. On episode number 156, I feature the senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Mr. Randall O'Toole. I first came across Randall at an event in 2019 at Chapman University, and it was the first event that I heard from a speaker that actually provided a differential point of view when it came down to how to solve congestion, how to look at infrastructure spending, and it was just so very refreshing to hear someone like Randall O'Toole and the sound ideas that he has that are based on a lot of historical information. And so in this episode, we cover a lot of different topics within infrastructure spending, and I very much pressed Randall to answer the question of how is it that we can better deal with all the billions of dollars that will be injected into state and local governments to fund infrastructure. Randall took me back to the 19th century where there was an expansion of rail transit at that time. We fast forward to the 1970s and how as he likes to call it, a sad accident of history on how we expanded rail transit in the United States. And we even get around to talking about monetary policy and how there are certain aspects of the monetary policy that could help fund auto ownership. Lastly, Randall's very much a serious guy, but there is one thing about him in this particular interview that I feel very lucky, and that was him displaying a bit of academic humor and sarcasm. And you will have to stay tuned to the very end of the episode to hear about what Randall ate for Thanksgiving. It's oddly desirable. If you want to learn more about Randall and follow him, go to his website, ti.org. And specifically, I would say ti.org slash anti-planner. And he has a lot of different policy briefs that you can read on his site. And they are quite in-depth. They are quite interesting to read. So give that a go. Also, you can purchase his latest book, Romance of the Rails, Why the Passenger Trains We Love Are Not the Transportation We Need. That book is available on Amazon, and I will put a link on the episode page. Before we get to today's episode, listeners, be sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Every Friday, I will publish the Friday Rundown, which covers the week in review, and I will put a special emphasis on the stock markets. One of the things that has happened this week is the IPO of DoorDash, and so that will be an interesting company to follow in the food delivery space in the coming years. So to hear more about that and other related stocks, be sure you tune in every Friday for the Friday Rundown. When I do record an interview with a professional in the industry, I will publish those episodes on Wednesday. And if Fridays and Wednesdays are not enough, I've also started to introduce podcast miniseries. The first one was titled Upward Social Mobility, and it discusses how to navigate life during COVID. The second miniseries was on van life titled Home is Where You Park It. There will be more miniseries coming up in 2021. 
So again, be sure you are subscribed to the show. The show is growing, which is quite amazing. Again, thank you to all you listeners that have constantly been been tuning in. I thank you so much. Now, let's get into this episode. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhay, bienvenidos, vitaita, vilkamen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly. Listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the show. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco, and my, oh my, listeners, have we come a long way. My guest today is someone I am so excited to hear from. Uh, I've been a, a fan of his work. We'll get to talk a little bit about some of his work, and I think this is a very, very important conversation to have right now. One of the things that we know that will come about early next year is the stimulus package. I think that with the billions and billions, actually, sorry, trillions of dollars that's going to be handed out, a conversation like this and knowing what drives policy is going to be a very important one to understand. So let's get to my guest today. My guest is a Cato Institute senior fellow working on urban growth public lands, and transportation issues. To this end, he has authored four books in these areas, starting with The Best Laid Plans, How Government Planning Harms Your Quality of Life, Your Pocketbook, and Your Future, followed by Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It, then American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership, and finally his most recent book, Romance of the Rails, Why the Passenger Trains We Love Are Not the Transportation We Need. My guest is an active cyclist, rail enthusiast, economist, skeptic, and he runs the Anti-Planner website at ti.org. He is a native to Oregon, and if there's one metaphor that encapsulates who my guest is, then it's this. He attended both Oregon State University and the University of Oregon. And if you're a college football fan, this rivalry series is appropriately dubbed the Civil War. Men, women, and children, please welcome to the show, Mr. Rando O'Toole. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you being on the show, sir. I think there's a lot of things that uh, I've been a fan of your work. I had the chance to read Gridlock. I think that has actually given me a lot of... uh, it's given me more substance and how to think about policy. Uh, there's, and, you know, that book was, you wrote that in 2008? Uh, I think that one was published in 2010. 2010. So I would have written it in 2009. I mean, tell, tell, me, tell me actually about that. You know, you wrote that in 2009, 10. We're 10 years later. What, how much of that book still applies till this day? Well, just about all of it. Um, you know, my major concern is that we're misprioritizing our transportation spending. We're spending an awful lot of money on tiny segments of transportation that hardly anybody uses, that carry no freight and very few passengers. And uh, we have this moral imperative to try to get people to stop driving when in fact driving is actually uh, safe, uh, clean, uh, and uh, certainly inexpensive and convenient for people. And 
since I wrote that book, which was focused on that, uh, the only thing that really changed is that in, during the Trump administration, and I'm not a huge fan of Donald Trump, but at least his transportation policies have been sensible. And he's been trying to uh, move transportation back towards uh, what people actually use rather than what we wish people would use. What, what and of course, an what we're going to see it? now is a pushback in the other direction. What would be an example of a transportation policy that was uh, under Trump that, again, that either we can look out for or perhaps even that the suggestion could be that a Biden presidency would undermine that? Well, the, before the Trump administration, Congress had passed uh, legislation giving cities incentives to build light rail, streetcars, and other forms of rail transit. Now, that sounds very uh, in cool and intriguing and so on. But the reality is the transit industry had universally agreed by about 1975 that rail transit was obsolete. Buses could move more people faster, uh, safer, cleaner, uh, and for far less money than rail transit could move. And their buses were more flexible. If a train broke down, all the trains had to stop. If a bus broke down, other buses could go around them. You could start new bus routes overnight. You could change your bus routes overnight. Changing a rail transit line takes years and years and, and hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So as I say, by 1975, rail transit was out. There were only eight cities that still had rail transit left and probably a couple of them would have dropped rail transit fairly soon. And then the federal government started spending money and set gave money to cities and said, here, build some rail transit lines. Well, you know, politicians will accept federal dollars, no matter how stupid the dollars are supposed to be spent on. And so the politicians got these dollars and said, okay, let's build rail transit. And, you know, there were always some rail fans who thought this, this was a cool idea, but we'd end up having huge cost overruns, to pay for the cost overruns, the transit agencies had to raise bus fares and cut bus service. And so we ended up with fewer ride transit riders after we built the tra rail transit lines than we had before in many cases. And certainly a smaller share of uh, travel in the city was taking transit than was taking it before. Portland, for example, my former hometown, is famous as a city that supposedly loves transit, but what it really loves is spending money on transit and people don't love riding it. In 1980, before it had any rail transit, 10% of Portland area commuters took buses to work. Since then, they've built five light rail lines, two uh, streetcar lines and a commuter rail line, and today, 8% of commuters take transit to work. Is that a good thing? Uh, Los Angeles is building light rail, and every time they open a new light rail line, they lose five bus riders for every new light rail rider they gain. So now I, we had this huge push for rail, and basically the Trump administration put the brakes and said, I'm not going to sign any more agreements to build new rail transit in cities. You know, we'll still finish the ones that, we, that uh, previous administrations had agreed to build, but we're not going to fund any more. And he pretty much kept to that. There were a couple times when he was forced by politics to agree to a couple, uh, a new rail line here and there. But for the most part, they kept to that. 
Amtrak Joe Biden is almost certainly going to jump back on the uh, rail transit boondoggles and, and go for more and more rail transit. And I think that's very sad because it hurts transit riders. It hurts cities. It puts cities and transit agencies heavily into debt. And it requires huge taxes to pay for the local match because the federal government only pays for part of the total cost. What, what happened? Between 1975 and, you know, these, the two, again, let's even say to this day that we got away from focusing and investing in bus infrastructure and instead focused too much on rail infrastructure and rail transit. Well, it was really a a sad accident of history. Uh, In 1973, there was a uh, governor of Massachusetts named Francis Sargent. And he could see that Boston was, in his opinion, being overrun by new freeways that were being built into the downtown Boston area. And freeways were controversial, especially when they were going through existing neighborhoods and existing cities. And so he wanted to cancel a couple of freeways that the federal government had agreed to fund. But he didn't want to lose the money. He wanted to keep the money, even though we didn't want to spend it on a freeway. So he went to Congress and said, will you let me spend this money on transit instead? So Congress said, okay, if a city wants to cancel an interstate freeway in the city, they can spend the money on transit capital improvements. They couldn't spend it on operating costs. They could only spend it on transit capital improvements. Well, that was easy for Boston because Boston had a lot of rail transit. So buying new rail cars, installing new signaling systems, even replacing existing rails that were worn out was considered a capital improvement. So they easily could spend the money that came from canceling a freeway. Meanwhile, the mayor of Portland, Oregon, a man named Neil Goldschmidt, who I was a fan of at the time, wanted to cancel a freeway in Portland. But Portland didn't have any rail transit. It only had buses. and bus capital improvements meant buying new buses. And that freeway was going to cost enough money that it would have to buy so many buses that the transit agency wouldn't be able to afford to run them. So that didn't make any sense. So this mayor, his name was Neil Goldschmidt, he came up with the idea of let's build a a streetcar line. Only streetcars sound so old-fashioned, we'll call it something else. We'll call it light rail. Everybody likes to be lightweight. Turns out light rail doesn't mean lightweight. It means light capacity. But uh, so they decided to build a light rail line with those uh, federal dollars. Well, they built that line and they created a monster, essentially. They created a lobby of contractors, engineering and design firms and unions, especially electrical unions and, and construction unions, that wanted more light rail gravy train to come in. Uh And so uh, Portland wasn't the only city that did this. It was the first city to use those funds to build a new light rail line, but uh, Sacramento, San Jose, Buffalo, and a couple other cities did as well. So uh, the light rail mafia, as it's called in Portland, these groups that benefit from overspending on expensive projects went to Congress. And in 1991, Congress created a special fund 
called New Starts or the Transit Capital Improvement Grants Fund. And it was about, started out at a little over a billion a year. Now it's about two and a half billion a year. And basically it provides 50% of the cost of building a new rail line somewhere. So instead of having eight cities that had obsolete rail transit, today America has 40 cities with obsolete rail transit because they've been enticed by these federal funds to build expensive, low capacity, in many cases, transit systems. Buses can move far more people than a light rail line in the same amount of space. So they end up building these low capacity systems and uh, then pat themselves on the back because they got all this federal dollars. I mean, so th there's a couple of things I, I, I want to ask you about. Um, in one direction is isn't this what we've always done as the United States in terms of spurring, stimulating the economy is by infusing, infusing private businesses with, with federal dollars in order to create jobs and create these projects, correct? We've, this is what we've always done. Uh, I would disagree. Um, in the 19th century, the federal government gave some dollars and a, and a lot more land to private companies to build railroads, transcontinental railroads across the country. Uh, about 19,000 miles of railroads were built with these funds. At that time, railroads were the up and coming thing. They were what uh, you know high tech is today. Um, okay. They were the high tech of their age. And so providing some seed money uh, for railroads or seed land grants for railroads could be considered to be a worthwhile policy. Frankly, I think what they ended up doing was they built the railroads before they were needed. The railroads that were built with these funds almost all went bankrupt. The transcontinental railroads that were built without those funds did well, like the Great Northern Railroad. Um, then in the 1940s, 1930s and 1940s, the federal government provided seed money to airlines by helping to fund airports. And so some major airports across the country were funded with federal funds. Again, they're funding a new technology. They're funding a new high-tech industry. Uh, and that may have made a difference in, in the growth of airlines. I think the airlines would have figured out how to fund those airports without those funds. All those subsidies stopped in 1970. Since 1970, what we've seen is the federal government funding last century's technology, uh, funding Amtrak, for example, which was basically a very worthwhile technology in 1920. By 1970, it was dead. Pa Intercity passenger trains made no sense in 1970. We had airplanes that were faster. We had car cars, automobiles, which were far more convenient. And both airplanes and automobiles today are far less expensive than Amtrak. So uh, by funding Amtrak, what we've done is we've funded an obsolete, inefficient form of transportation, and we have promoted that inefficiency. We have encouraged it to be inefficient by keeping throwing more money at it. The same way with urban transit. Instead of encouraging cities to provide buses or other innovative transit solutions, uh, we have encouraged cities to build these 
expensive, expensive rail transit lines. Just as an example, when you amortize the cost of all the capital improvements out over the lifespan of the improvement and add that amortized cost to the average operating cost, to move one person one mile in San Jose by bus costs $10. To move one person by one mile in San Jose by light rail costs $26. That's how much more expensive rail transit is than buses. And yet San Jose and Portland and Austin and other cities all over the country want to build more light rail because they want to get those federal dollars. So there's a part of me that thinks, well, if invest if we if we haven't made any technological investments in transportation for the last 50 years and what we've been investing in is rail transit, I would also think the same of bus, where bus is fairly an outdated technology, no? Or is there what would be the difference in the a bus model versus a transit model? And I would see both of those as just being both outdated. No? Well, first of all, we as a country have invested heavily in a lot of transportation modes other than rail transit. It's just that the federal government hasn't participated in that investment. It's mostly been private. Buses are the newest transportation technology that urban transit systems have. Light rail, streetcars, heavy rail, subways, uh, commuter rail, all of those date back to the 19th century. The first buses really appeared in large numbers in the 1920s. And the first bus that was competitive, the first modern bus really appeared in 1927. Okay, 93 years old. That's the newest technology. Well, actually, there are newer technologies uh, for mass transportation. Uh, you probably have one on your smartphone. It's called Uber and Lyft and you know things like that. Those technologies are uh, revolutionizing transportation. But just looking at buses, we have seen in the private intercity bus industry tremendous changes in the last 20 years. In the year 2000, the bus industry was declining. And then what happened was Britain privatized its intercity bus system. It had previously been government run, government owned, government subsidized, and they privatized it. And two of the government agencies that had been running buses became private companies and grew up and changed their names to Stagecoach and First Transportation or First Group. Uh, first Group eventually bought what is today Greyhound. Stagecoach started what is today Megabus. And Megabus revolutionized bus service in this country. Instead of having an expensive bus station, they just parked their buses at curbside. Instead of having expensive baggage handlers, they just had people load their own baggage onto the buses. Instead of having expensive ticket agents, you just bought tickets over the internet. You bought your ticket, you went to the bus, you put your bag on board, you climbed on the bus, you had free Wi-Fi, you had plug-ins for your power uh, hungry devices, uh, and you were able to get to where you want to go without wasting your time because you're able to work on the bus trip. And, you know, Amtrak charges, well, a few years ago, it was charging $70 one way to get from Washington to New York. And I happened to be in Washington, D.C. at the time. And somebody asked me to go to New York to 
uh, attend an event. So instead of paying $70 one way on Amtrak, I went round trip on Megabus. It cost $17 and a half dollars. And it took like 60 minutes more each way, which basically wasn't a cost to me because I was able to work on my laptop during that time. I, I, so I, Megabus I like... has revolutionized bus transportation. And we've even seen more innovation since then. I feel like this is like your next book. You have Romance of the Rails and here's you're going to have another book called Bring Back the Bus. Well, I don't think the bus is the end all be all of transportation. Really the end all, the next step in transportation is going to be uh, driverless cars. Uh, and driverless cars are going to be affordable and you can e you'll be able to either use them as a uh, ride hailing system using an app on your smartphone or you'll be able to own one eventually uh, of course waymo which is the driverless car arm of google is actually operating driverless cars in public service uh, in the mesa uh, glendale area of arizona uh, or is it chandler chandler mesa of arizona um, and you know anybody can pull out their smartphone and call up a Waymo car. They'll come to their door without a driver and they'll take them to where they want to go within that area without a driver. Uh, General Motors has promised to start doing this in San Francisco. Uh, they were going to do it this year, but it'll be delayed till next year. Ford was talking about doing it next year. So we're going to see more and more. Uh, currently, most of the driverless cars are, are rely on extremely precise maps and only part of the country is mapped, which is why they can only serve small areas. As more and more of the country is mapped, or as people develop driverless car software that can go in unmapped areas, as Tesla says it is doing, uh, pretty soon you'll be able to buy a car. They'll be able to drive you to Yellowstone Park or San Francisco or wherever you want to go, and you won't have to think about it, except for when it gets low on gas, you'll be able to tell it where to stop to buy gas. By the way, uh, I know we were supposed to go through some of these passages and listeners, Randall and I had spoken before the recording here. There's a few passages from his essays that he's written on his website. We were going to go through these, but this is such such a riveting conversation that we're having right now, Randall. Are you okay to continue with this? Well, I'm fine. And, you know, we're getting all the subjects. You know, one of the papers I wrote was about the transit industrial complex and how right, right. the transit industrial complex is a bigger lobby than the so-called so highway lobby, which basically is a, is a few minor groups in Washington, D.C., whose total budgets add up to about five or six million dollars, whereas the transit lobby consists of the American Public Transportation Association, which has a 30 million dollar a year budget, and various transit unions, which have $30 million a year budgets, uh, and various contractors, and so on and so forth. The transit lobby is extremely powerful, uh, and, is, and I you know, alluded to that when I talked about all the contractors and design firms and so on that were lobbying for the federal government to spend more money building light rail and other obsolete transportation. Well, how, how do we shift the money to go away from the transit industrial complex and into this driverless industrial complex that obviously is obsolete at the moment, or at least it's it's still in its infancy stages. How do we start to, I mean, this is really why I, I'm, I, this is what I'm really most interested in as we move into 2021 and, and having you on the show here too. It's 
inevitably, we're going to disperse trillions of dollars and billions of dollars specifically into infrastructure. How can we make better use of that money so that we don't continue to do the same things like you're suggesting, that we've, we've still are spending money on uh, rail transit, that that technology hasn't improved since 1970? How do we get some of this infrastructure spending to be diverted to the projects that would uh, you know, further progress a driverless future? Well, I'm afraid that it's all political. Um, really, give me the hope, best Randall. Way, Randall, give me hope. The, the, the best way to spend the money properly is for the federal government to stop spending any money at all. Because politicians want to spend money on monuments, on things where they can cut ribbons uh, and, and pat themselves on the back, plus get campaign contributions from all the contractors that are making enormous profits from building these expensive systems. They don't want to spend money on maintenance, which is why we have such a severe maintenance backlog of local streets and bridges, uh, which are mainly funded out of tax dollars. State highways, however, are tend to be in fairly good condition, and state bridges are in fairly good condition because they're mainly funded out of user fees. Uh, transit, though, has a $100 billion maintenance backlog because it's mainly funded out of tax dollars. If we want, whether we want to or not, we're going to get driverless cars and that we don't need any government spending to get them. They can use existing infrastructure. They don't need anything special. Uh, and so we're going to get driverless cars. So what we're going to see the government do is it's going to talk about and maybe it's going to spend money on high-speed rail and light rail and other ridiculous, obsolete trans transportation systems. People aren't going to use them. Um, somebody's going to get a job building them. And then when this, the construction is done, they're not going to have a job anymore until, unless they lobby to build even more. And uh, it's going to put our country more and more in debt. And the people who are actually using the privately funded transportation, such as driverless cars, are the ones who are going to have to earn the money to pay back that debt. And, I mean, I, I understand the concept of trying to get you know, the federal government out of your life, out of your household, as much as possible, that is. But again, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of the fact that it's, it's inevitable that the federal dollars are going to come down and you are going to have the transit lobbyists that will try to secure those dollars, uh, you know, lobby for those dollars so that they could pass it to their constituents. And it just, it, I know there doesn't seem to be much hope, but I still would like to think that there's a way that people like myself, other people that are involved in this industry can do something so that we can start to bring about, again, this future that I think that we all would want. I mean, I think a lot of your transit enthusiasts are, are for these driverless cars because for them, one of the things that's always top of mind is safety, right? Th these are the same folks that would prefer biking over cars. So they're all about safety. Wouldn't driverless cars bring about more safety and hence we can persuade more of the, you know, the public dollars to be directed towards driverless technology and driverless infrastructure? Well, first of all, a, a giant infrastructure package isn't inevitable. The Democrats only have 48 seats in the Senate. And if the Republicans win at least one and preferably both of this runoff seats in the, in the Georgia, the, in the election that's going to take place on January 5th then there's a good chance Republicans will be able to 
restrain Congress from wildly spending on ridiculous high-speed rail and, and other kinds of projects. We'll probably continue building some, some but not as many ridiculous light rail projects, but uh, we won't be going way overboard. If, if the Democrats win both of those seats, then I, I wouldn't be surprised if we end up spending a trillion dollars on high-speed rail alone, because that's what it's going to cost to build any kind of a system uh, that that will make any kind of an impact, a measurable impact, and even then it's going to be a tiny impact. Now, as far as uh, seeing what uh, new transportation develop, I have to say the people who like transit and who like high-speed rail don't seem to like any kind of independent automotive transportation. I think they're sold on the idea of collective transportation because then there's more control over where people get to live, over where people get to work, and over where people get to travel to. Whereas independent transportation, no matter how safe, is less important to them. Just as an example, light rail kills twice as many people for every passenger mile it carries, or every billion passenger miles it carries, as urban roads and streets. Uh, and yet they never say, well, let's stop building light rail because it's dangerous. You know, they continue to promote these dangerous light rail trains and in, in, in streets, uh, no matter how many people get killed by them. They always say, oh, well, it's the people's fault. You know, I like to say if, if somebody had a, uh, a Siberian tiger and they let it loose in the middle of downtown New York and they put up a sign saying, be careful of the tiger, when people got eaten by the tiger, would it be legitimate to say, well, it was their fault. They didn't read the sign. Uh, but that's what we do. We build these light rail lines and we run cars that weigh 300,000 pounds or trains that weigh 300,000 pounds down the street. They run into a 3,000 pound automobile and cream it and kill the driver. Oh, it's the driver's fault. They shouldn't have driven on the light rail track. And I mean, there, and there's no hope of ever trying to uproot any rail infrastructure, right? Actually, there is. You know, we used to have uh, streetcar lines in every American city with more than 15,000 people. More than 1,000 cities had streetcar lines. And the thing about rail transit is it wears out and it's really expensive to build, but it's also really expensive to replace. Right. So they wore out. At about the time that these 1927 buses came along, that were the first modern buses, and within 10 years, five more than 500 cities had converted completely from streetcars to buses, and and the other 500 were partly converted to buses. Uh, by as I say, by 1975, we were down to just eight cities. Six of them had streetcars. Two of them only had uh, heavy rail transportation, but. Uh, only eight cities had any kind of rail transportation at all. So the question becomes, when a rail line wears out, are we going to keep feeding the beast by rebuilding it? Or are we going to say, hey, rails don't make sense. Let's replace it with buses. Maybe even buses don't make sense. Maybe we should replace it with Uber and Lyft. But uh, don't build high capacity, high what I call big box transit. It's not high capacity transit because light rail actually has lower capacities than buses, but it's big box transit, which means you get 
have these big boxes that you can fill 400 people, you know, pack 400 people into and go from point A to point B. There's hardly any place in any of our cities that have 400 people who want to go from point A to point B. So they don't make sense. Um, you, you, you mentioned the example in Britain where the bus system was went from pu- uh, public hands to private hands. Most that, of the transit be systems a- were privatized. Uh, it wasn't during the Thatcher era. It was right after Thatcher. She wanted to do it, but she didn't have the political muscle to do it. But after her successor was able to privatize them, privatized the intercity rail system too, to some degree. Uh, and, and curiously, Britain has not been building high-speed rail, unlike France and Germany and Italy and Spain. And yet Britain's rail transportation, passenger transportation, has been growing far faster than in any of those other countries because the privatized railroads have been eagerly going after people. And in many cases, they're competing with each other in the same corridors, and they've been doing what they can to attract new riders. Whereas building high-speed trains doesn't get people out of their cars. It just gets people out of low-speed trains and on the high-speed trains. You know, the the high-speed trains at the moment, I mean, I think there was one that I think Arizona had approved one and Texas has has, has approved one. I think those Texas, are the it's two. not Arizona. It's uh, California to Las Vegas. California but, to Las Vegas. But getting them approved and getting them funded are two different things. Um, neither of them have been able to raise the money. The one in Texas, they said it was going to cost $10 billion. And at the ridership they were projecting, it would cost $100 a ride to go from Houston to Dallas. Well, the airlines were charging $99 a ride. So essentially, they were going to compete against the airlines at the same fares that the airlines were charging. Since then, the projected cost of the line has increased to 3 $30 billion, which means they'd have to charge $300 a trip, and the airlines are still charging only 100 There's no way that's feasible. The one in California uh, was supposed to go from the grand metropolis of Victorville, California, to Las Vegas. Victorville <laughs> is on the other side of the mountains from Los Angeles. So you were supposed yeah. to drive from Los Angeles to Victorville and then park your car and get in the car and take the train to Las Vegas. Um, they got the right to sell what are called private activity bonds, which are tax-exempt bonds. And they put the bonds up for sale and got zero takers. No private investors were willing to invest in this ridiculous uh, Victorville to Vegas uh, high-speed rail system. So, you know, it's, it's you, questionable you know, whether anything's going to happen unless the federal government starts throwing money at it. You know, I, I had actually a um, he he was the president and founder of Inland Energy, I believe is the name. It's the energy company out in Victorville, which he was supposed to be one of the backers of that rail, that rail line. And, you know, he, he's been involved with trying to actually build out the rail line, not just from Victorville, but even from Anaheim, basically Disneyland, all the way out to Vegas. And it's a project that he still follows, but there's definitely no momentum in there whatsoever. But apparently it's also not dead. Well, what happened was people like him had a great website. They did a few little reports. Uh, you know, they tried to promote it. They got nowhere. And uh, a company in Florida 
you wanted to use existing railroad tracks from Miami to Cocoa Beach and then build a new line. railroad tracks from Cocoa to Orlando and have a Miami to Orlando moderate speed rail line. The top speeds would be 90 miles an hour Miami to Cocoa and then 110 miles an hour Cocoa to Orlando. Uh, Miami gets something like 5 million cruise ship passengers a year. Fort Lauderdale gets 4 million cruise ship passengers a year. So you have a market of 9 million people who want to go to Orlando. That actually could have made sense. But they then bought the rights to build the Victorville to Las Vegas line. And, you know, they thought because they could make sense with uh, the Orlando line, they could also. Uh, sell to investors the idea of a Las Vegas line. The problem is Victorville doesn't have any cruise ship traffic because it's in the middle of the desert. You know, there's no cruise ships there. There's nobody there who wants to get on a train and go to Las Vegas. So anybody who wants to is going to have to get there from somewhere else. And once you make it to Victorville, you only save an hour by taking the high-speed train as opposed to driving. And who yeah. doesn't want to drive to Las Vegas and be able to follow, you know, uh, uh, Hunter Thompson's footsteps, you know, and, and the, the immortal first words of his book, Fear and Loathing of Las Vegas, which was, we were almost to Barso in the middle of the desert when the drugs began to take effect. You know, who doesn't want to drive that part instead of taking a, high, a sterile high-speed train, right? So there's no way that's ever going to make sense or ever gonna be feasible unless the federal government throws billions of dollars at it, and then it's just gonna be a big waste. All right, so I think you know the conclusion that we're getting out of this, that I'm getting out of this, is essentially any money that's being, that, that will be spent on tra uh, transit, rail transit specifically, is just gonna be a big pile of waste. Where, right. can, where can we spend, where, again, knowing that, if it's not going to be $800 billion towards infrastructure spending, it's going to be $200 billion. There's going to be some money spent by the government that's going to help stimulate the economy. Where can we look to see that this is money well spent? Well, first of all, let's not call this an economic stimulus because the economy is actually doing very well. You know, the V-shaped recovery that Trump projected would happen is actually happening. And so we don't need to stimulate the economy. What this is, is pork, pure pork barrel. That's all it is. The Democrats love pork barrel. And it, Republicans love pork barrel too, but Republicans are a little more hesitant. And there's a lot of Tea Party Republicans still in Congress who don't love pork barrel. And that makes the party as a whole a little bit more hesitant about pork barrel. But if there's an infrastructure bill, it's pure pork barrel. Now, here's the problem. I already mentioned infrastructure paid for with taxes ends up being poorly maintained because politicians would rather spend money on new infrastructure than on maintenance. As somebody in the Department of Transportation said, they'd rather spend their money on ribbons, not brooms. Cutting, cutting ribbon ceremonies rather than brooms maintaining the, the facility. That's why we let local bridges get out of shape and become structurally deficient because local roads are paid for by uh, tax dollars, and the local politicians would rather do things like build streetcar lines or aerial tramways than maintain the local streets and bridges. That's why 
our transit systems are so out of shape with a more than a hundred billion dollar deficit, uh, maintenance deficit, or Amtrak, which owns most of the tracks between Boston and Washington in the Northeast Corridor, has a $52 billion backlog of maintenance work that needs to be done. Uh, it's because these things are paid for out of taxes, not out of, out of user fees. So if we're going to have an infrastructure bill, we should fund as much as we can out of user fees. All transportation can be funded out of user fees. If it can't be funded out of user fees, we don't need it. That's what it means. Mm. If people aren't willing to pay for it out of user fees, it means they don't want it. They don't need it. You know, the idea that, oh, we should, even though it's going to lose money, we should build rail transit to give people a choice. Well, there's a lot of choices we're not giving people. How about dirigibles? That's a choice. How come we don't have a multi-billion dollar federal program of dirigibles moving people around? How about are, being shot from cannons? Being shot from cannons is a choice. How come we don't have a system of nets all over our cities that we can be shot from cannons into the nets as a form of transportation? That could spend a lot of money. Somehow, through an accident of history, we've ended up going with streetcars and light rail, which is just a slightly more modern streetcar. And that's become the mode of, of choice for federal funders. And that's stupid. Um, so instead of that, fund things out of uh, user fees where we can. And there are some kinds of infrastructure that aren't easily funded out of user fees. Um, education, schools, maybe. But of course, we don't really, you know, demographically, I don't think we need a lot of new schools, but we might need some. Um, uh, sewage facilities. Sewage facilities are a definite public good. If we hook people up to sewage treatment plants, we, we reduce disease, we save a lot of lives. There's, there's definitely a, a good reason for doing that. So, and, and storm sewers, that's definitely something that can be fixed. So there are things that can't be easily funded out of user fees. Uh, although some people would say education can be and sewers can be, but storm sewers can't. So maybe if we're going to spend any money at all, spend it on the things that can't be funded out of user fees. But if we really want our infrastructure to be in good shape, fund it out of user fees wherever possible, because that's the infrastructure that's in the best condition today. Let's, I want to pivot to an, a slightly different topic. So we've been spending a lot of time talking about uh Stimulus spending, although again, you've aptly described it, not this, you don't need to stimulate the economy right now. It's on its recovery. Um, so, so we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the, the infrastructure spending aspect. What if we start to talk about monetary policy? What does interest rates, what should they look like if we are to, again, maybe focus on transportation and trying to move people at its at its lowest cost do we still continue to keep rates as low as they are so that does help fund auto ownership more banks are lending does that help well there's a lot of I, things packed into that question i and and, and uh, forgive me that we pivoted yeah, here but again i yeah. that this is just interesting that we're that we started on the federal level but i would be curious now on the monetary on monetary policy level well you raised the question of interest rates, and the Fed has a lot of say over a basic interest rate. Um, and I think what the Fed does is probably very dangerous with that interest rate. Uh, and 
but I'm not an expert on monetary policy. So I can't really talk about that in detail. I think we have a serious fiscal problem in being that we're trillions of dollars in debt and that debt is rising very rapidly. And uh, you know, at some point, you know, we're financing that because the dollar is the world currency. It's the currency preferred all over the world, uh, which means people are willing to give us stuff for our dollars. But at some point they're gonna say, wait a minute, you know, you've got such a huge debt that those dollars aren't worth as much anymore. You're gonna have to use inflation to pay off the debt. So we don't want dollars anymore. You can buy our stuff, but you're gonna have to buy it in uh, uh, euros or uh, yen or something like that. And when that happens, we're gonna be in big trouble. It's gonna cause a huge problem for our economy. Is that gonna happen this decade? Is it gonna happen in my lifetime? Uh, I don't know, but I can't see any way to avoid it at some point. The only way to get out of that debt is to rely on inflation. And when you start relying on inflation, people are going to stop accepting our dollars to buying imported goods. Okay, uh, but interest rates has another interesting uh, issue. And you brought up car ownership. Now, about 91.5% of American households own a car. And of the high-income households, about 15 to 2% don't own cars. So there's a few people who just don't want to own a car. They'll live in New York City or Chicago or San Francisco or some other place where you don't really need to have a car uh, and they'll live without one. But it, it, from the fact that only one and a half to 2% of high income people don't have cars, it sounds like about 98% of people would want to have cars, which means there's a gap between that 98% and that 91.5%. That works out to about 7 million low-income households who don't have cars, who probably would want to have cars if they could afford them. Well, what are the barriers to them having a car? Well, they don't have a lot of savings. Uh, they probably don't have enough money. I mean, we hear about, uh, they probably don't have $400 in their account so that they have a $400 hit to their you know, healthcare or something else, they aren't gonna be able to pay it. So they certainly aren't gonna be able to buy a decent used car. Uh, they can go to the bank and ask for money to buy a used car, but if you have a poor credit rating and you want to buy a used car, the banks will charge you almost 20% interest, which on a five or six year loan will almost double the cost of your car. Uh, so what I advocate for on social justice grounds, not on monetary grounds or uh, economic efficiency grounds, but on social justice grounds is that state governments and maybe the federal government, but certainly state governments should start a program of loaning money to low-income people who don't have cars so that they can buy a car and provided they make their monthly payments on time, will waive the interest rates. If they don't make monthly payments on time, if they're late with a payment, then maybe we'll charge them like, uh, you know, 6% interest or something. We won't charge them 20% like the banks are doing, but we'll charge them a some interest to give them an incentive to, to make their payments on time. If we get those low-income people off of transit, which is slow, inconvenient, and expensive, and into fast, convenient, and inexpensive cars, they'll have access to far more jobs. The average American urban resident can reach 30 times as many jobs in a 30-minute auto drive 
as they can reach in a 30 minute transit ride. They can reach twice as many jobs in a 30 minute auto drive as in a 60 minute transit ride. So uh, giving somebody a low income person a car gives them access to more economic opportunities, gives them access to lower cost consumer goods, gives them access to all the things that all the rest of us have who own a car. And so it's on a social justice grounds, it makes a lot more sense to create a pro program like this than it does to have, as some people are advocating, free transit. Okay, we'll give the poor people second class transportation. We won't charge them for it. That really makes you feel good. I get second class transportation. Everybody else gets first class. Sorry, I don't think that's socially just. You know, I must say that when... I read that passage in your essay, and, and uh, let's see, what was the name of that essay? Reducing Poverty by Increasing Automobile Ownership. Reducing Poverty by Increasing Auto Ownership. And listeners, I'm going to put a link to some of these passages on the episode page so you can take a look at it for yourself. But when you had proposed that, Randall, I actually was somewhat taken back by it, to be honest with you, because I didn't think that someone of your stature who is you know, always railed against the the transit agency, uh, big government, that you would actually find a compromise to say that, okay, this would be a program that would be permissible. It was, you know, when you came up with this idea, was this something that, uh, I don't know, were you, did you struggle to come up with it? Did you, were you forced to come up with an idea such as this? Because I think it's actually a really good one. I, 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 I love this idea. Well, the people on my side have been talking about something like this for a, actually a long time. And I think I oh, mentioned really? it in gridlock as well as in best laid plans. But what we said was instead of giving transit agencies $50 billion a year to carry people uh, and some of those people are poor, why don't we just give transportation vouchers to poor people and they can use it on transit, on Uber, on taxis, on Amtrak, on airlines, whatever public common carrier transportation is available. Uh, but I just went the next step and I said, you know, why confine people to common carrier transportation when the automobile if for urban purposes is far more convenient and far more economical than Uber or Lyft or uh, public transit or anything else? And it can reach far more jobs than a bicycle uh, and, and so on and so forth. So I took it the next step. And, yeah. and it's not like this was a totally original idea. There are actually nonprofit groups all over the country that have been doing this for years, only on a very small scale. Uh, you know, there's a, a group in Dallas, Texas called, uh, uh, I can't remember, but uh, they, uh, uh, have, they've given hundreds of people low interest loans to buy a car. But we have a problem of 7 million people, 7 million households need a car. So they're just scratching the surface. So uh, we need to greatly I, expand it. I got a network of folks, Randall, that are more than willing to unload all these cars. They have lots of cars. These are a lot of my audiences in the dealership space. Man, they would love to get rid of these cars. Well, this group in, uh, in Dallas, which actually is working in several different states, um, almost insist that people buy a new car with the with their loan that they don't buy like a four thousand dollar used car goodwill has a program of giving people up to four thousand dollars loaning people up to four thousand dollars to buy a used car but this group 
loans people $15,000 or $16,000 to buy a new car. And there are several decent cars out there that cost fifteen dollars or $16,000. You know, there's a Nissan Versa and, a, you know, several others. Uh, Chevrolet has one, Toyota has one. And so uh, it's good, decent transportation. It'll make the auto dealer some money. It'll make the manufacturers some money and it'll greatly improve the lives. What the groups that do this find is that the people who get these cars, it enables them to get off of food stamps, to stop using vouchers for housing, uh, to get a better job, to get a higher paying job and to keep that job. In fact, studies show that uh, a poor uneducated person is more likely to have a better higher paying job if they have a car than if they have a high school diploma. So, uh, car ownership I would, is really important for everybody. I would still like to see perhaps more used cars purchased, to be honest with you. I think there are too many good cars that have been made over the last 20 years that I don't think automakers need to continue to uh, pump out new car after new car. Uh, you know, I think this goes along the idea of sustainability. And again, there's there's just too many good cars these days. And, and unfortunately, the automotive industry, they too have kind of built this automotive industrial complex where, you know, I had a gentleman on my show, Scott Weber, who's the um, department chair at Weber State University, Scott Hadsick, sorry, at Weber State University. He's the automotive technology chair. And he was sharing some really good information on how, you know, it's like, it's a chicken or egg scenario because the automa automakers have built these really good cars, technologically built, electrically driven. And yet there's not all this training for mechanics to take, take care of these cars. So what ends up happening is that the automakers have basically created this cycle of, well, there's a, there's a part on the engine that broke. Let's just replace the whole engine because we have, we have this manufacturing lines of new engines. And there goes the cycle of, supply and demand, but kind of, you know, artificially inflated. Well, a couple of decades ago, the average car on the road was less than six years old, which means cars lasted about 11 or 12 years, typically. You know, a few lasted a lot longer, a lot didn't last that long. And so on average, they lasted approximately that. Today, the average car on the road is 11 years old, and it's been rising steadily, which means there's a a lot of cars on the road that are 20 years old and still have some miles uh, on them, you know, can put some more miles on them. So that means we have a much more robust used car market today because you know you can buy a 10 or 15 year old car and still run it for a lot of years. And in fact, somebody on Reddit once did a bunch of calculations and found that the optimal car buying strategy was to buy a car when it was 10 years old, drive it for five years and sell it and buy another car that was 10 years old. You know, if you just want to save money, you know, spend the least amount of money. So we do have a robust used car market. Um, I think Americans bought about 13 million new cars last year. Uh, which to me doesn't sound that great because back in the 1960s, they were buying 10 million cars a year and we had a lot fewer people. So the reason why they only bought 13 million is because we have so many used cars out there. Unfortunately, the Obama cash for clunkers program really killed the used car market because a lot of people destroyed their used cars in order to get cash to buy an, a new, more fuel efficient car. But uh, that program was 
you know, 12 years ago almost. And so uh, we sort of recovered from that. And I Didn't think there are a lot of do- opportunities to buy used cars. Didn't that, though, do a little bit of good because it did incentivize folks to get out of their older, you know, less efficient vehicles into something newer that had newer technology? Well, you could say that did some good, but the the total um, greenhouse gas emission reduction from that was rather small compared to its total cost. And, you know, again, from a social justice viewpoint, that program really hurt low-income people because it really harmed the uh, used car market. It made, meant there were a lot fewer used cars available for low-income people to buy, uh, and it's taken them until uh, well, it took them until 2014 to start to recover. And now, uh, low-income car ownership has started to increase again over the last five or six years. I mean. Having worked in that business during that time, I don't recall such a shortage or such a struggle of, you know, low-income folks getting used cars. I think, again, part of it was there was a lot of low-income people that just had old cars. You know, this was back in about 2011 where I was working at a Toyota dealership out in the Inland Empire. And we did have a lot of used cars and we did have a lot of business coming in using applying for that cash for clunkers type program. And again, they were trading in their 1990 Toyota Camry for a 2005 Toyota Camry now. Mm, Are you sure? I'm not sure a Toyota Camry got bad enough mileage that it was eligible for a cash for clunkers program. Well, 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 it, it, well, I think it was just because it was old enough. It was, it was, it was all, if your car was old enough, then you got a certain amount of money to apply that towards a Again, it was either a new car under a certain amount or if it was a used car within. Yeah, I, you know, I think you had to get less than 25 miles to the gallon or something, too. And that wasn't just age. If you if you had a, you know, a 20 year old Toyota Prius that got 55 miles to the gallon, right, you right. weren't eligible for right. that. So do you but the, do you foresee another cash for clunkers type of program or any stimulus, any again, stimulus type of program for cars? Well, I hope not on social justice grounds. You know, I think. Social justice, you, you asked me about this before. I think social justice is important, but I also think it's important to really look at policies and see what their impact is on social justice. For example, 75% of the funds used to subsidize urban transit come from regressive taxes like sales taxes. And yet the people who are most likely to ride urban transit are people who earn more than $75,000 a year. They're far more likely to ride it than people who earn less than $25,000 a year. Uh So we have a system of low-income people. 95% of low-income people don't take transit to work. So this 95% of people are disproportionately paying taxes to subsidize transit rides that they'll never use that are mainly being used by high-income people. That's not socially just. And that's why I came up with the idea of let's have uh, 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 low interest loans or zero interest loans on a large scale for low income people so that we can get them out of poverty as opposed to just subsidizing their poverty, which is what we do today. A couple more questions here for you, sir. Do you, do you have some, some time left? Sure. So um, I want to ask you about um, the, I, I, I guess this, of all the things that I've seen, read, 
on you. You know, there was actually a good uh, interview, although short, that you did with John Stossel back in the day. Do you recall that? Well, actually, an interview with John Stossel about Amtrak is the interview that I went to New York on on the mega bus for seventeen and a half dollars from Washington D.C. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so that, he that ended like, that so interview saying he wanted to express his thanks to all of his listeners for subsidizing his Amtrak ride to uh, Washington D.C. whenever he went there, and I just yelled, "I take mega bus!" And I got a few weeks <laughs> later, I got a, or a few days later, I got an email from the CEO of Mega Bus. Uh, invited me to meet with him, and he actually came and spoke to one of the conferences that I put on. Well, so what is where does the Libertarian Party stand in 2021? You know, especially when you do have the the president uh, or the candidate Joe Jorgensen, who received less than what two percent of, of of all the votes. And again, I, I look at a guy like John Stossel, and I'm like, God, the stuff he promotes is amazing. I, I'm I'm a big fan of, of of his work, but I also don't see it having the impact that it does. You, you know, I, I you were kind of this godfather that I see of of the transit of the transportation space. There's there's so much good wisdom and knowledge that you have, but I I'm I'm I want to be hopeful about what we can expect out of the Libertarian Party movement, Conservative Party movement in 2021 and beyond? Well, I can't speak for the Libertarian Party. I don't have anything to do with them. Um, but uh, free market groups like the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, uh, American Enterprise Institute, uh, 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 Competitive Enterprise Institute, Mercatus Center, and then state-based uh, free market think tanks like Cascade and, and Oregon and Washington Policy Center and, and Washington State and Independence Institute in Colorado. You know, they're, they're state-based free market think tanks in almost every state. And, and they are doing what they can on the state level and then the national groups are doing what they can on the national level. And uh, Reason Foundation is a big player in the transportation issues. You know, Cato Institute has me and Reason Foundation has uh, Mark Scribner and Baruch Feigenbaum and Bob Poole and a couple other people working on transportation. So uh, they're they're doing a lot. Really, it's a matter of public education. And, and I'm cheered when I see Portland, which has sunk billions of billions of dollars in a light rail and they put light rail on the ballot and people said no. They're not interested in wasting any more money on that. And I'm depressed when I see Austin, which is twice voted against building more light rail, building any light rail, and they had a measure on the ballot to spend $5 billion on light rail lines. It's probably going to actually cost $8 billion, uh, and it passed. And it's just, okay, we need to educate people. We need to figure out ways of reaching people. And this is one of the reasons that I emphasize things like social justice and environmental uh, impacts because light rail is not good for for the environment. High-speed rail is not good for the environment. You're going to generate huge quantities of greenhouse gases trying to build high-speed rail. You're never going to make it up in the savings, if you get any savings at all, in operating it. Um, and not good for social justice either. We're talking about taxing low-income people to get high-income people out of their cars. What's good for the environment and what's good for social justice is automobiles. 
and we need to be upfront and say that. Uh, personally, I'd rather bicycle, I'd rather take a train, I'd rather ride in a dome car, but I look at the numbers out there and automobiles are more fuel efficient every year, they're greener every year, uh, with 92% of people owning them, they're more socially just every year. Uh, that's the way that people have chosen to do despite all of the anti-automobile stuff that governments have thrown at them. And instead of trying to fight reality, it's time for government to go along with reality and just accept it. And that doesn't mean subsidizing cars. We should end subsidies to highways. We should end subsidies to bridges. Um, but if we fund those things out of user fees, people will pay those fees and we'll see a lot of driving and we'll see a lot of economic benefits from that driving. So you're you're an active cyclist. What do you think of this spur, uh, this this you know um, big sales of electric bikes? Are, are do you have an electric bike yourself? Um, you know, I'm a bike snob, and anybody who's got an electric <laughs> bike, I sneer at. That's not a real bike. You know, a bike is something that you have to work at. I live in the mountains, so I'll go on a bike ride and I'll climb one thousand, two thousand feet. You know, in an hour or so. Uh, because, you know, that gives me a good workout. I get to see a lot of incredible scenery. Uh, and then I get to enjoy the downhill part too, but actually I enjoy the uphill part out pro probably more than the downhill part. Being 68 years old, I'm not too inclined to go 50 miles an hour down a hill anymore. But the point is, uh, I love cycling. Um, and I love the workout you get from it. And if, with electric bikes, that's not cycling. That's just another way of, of you know, relying on the grid to get you around. Um, if you live in an area like Oregon or California where most of the electricity comes from hydroelectric dams, then maybe you're saving a few grams of CO2 by using an electric bike. If you live in Chicago or Denver or Phoenix or Salt Lake City, uh, you're spewing out huge amounts of greenhouse gases every time you plug that electric bike into your charger because it's relying on coal or other fossil fuels to charge the batteries. Okay, last question here. We talked about this before, and I, I, wanted, I wanted to hear this one more time from you. Normally, normal people, we have turkeys on Thanksgiving. What is your Thanksgiving meal? <laughs> Well, I really like Neapolitan pizza, and I've enjoyed pizza from uh, uh, Pizzeria Bianco in, in uh, Phoenix. Uh, uh, Chris Bianco really kind of invented what we call Neapolitan pizza today. And I enjoy Two Amy's Pizza in, in Washington, D.C., and Punch Pizza in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Ken's Artisan Pizza in Portland. but I really enjoy making it myself. And so instead of making an ordinary pizza, I make a pepperoni pizza made with turkey pepperoni. And that's what we're gonna be having this Thanksgiving is a turkey pepperoni pizza. I hope one day, I do hope one day I will be able to try that. Well, you're welcome to visit us. Come in the summer and I'll make it for you in our outdoor pizza oven. It's really great. I, I, I will take you up on that. Sir, any parting advice that you could leave for myself and listeners as we move forward and as we're going to have to deal with, be it an infrastructure package, be it some sort of fight? I mean, again, you went to Oregon State and Oregon. You're familiar with how two colleges and universities are you know, fighting with a civil war. 
there's a fight that I do believe that my, my people are in and I need some help. Well, I think the important thing is to learn how to speak the other side's language because, mm. you know, we're talking at cross purposes. We mostly use different terms. We mostly use different idioms and they mean different things for us. So when we say something like equality, it means something completely different to somebody on the right and somebody on the left. So, so we need to learn each other's language and need to sh look at the numbers and see which policies really fit what we want to do. Really, what I think the left thinks of as social justice and the right thinks of as social justice aren't that far apart. It's just that the left has a whole lot of prescriptions that they claim will produce social justice that I don't think will work at all. So I use social justice to convince people on both sides that policies that make economic sense also make socially just sense and also usually are environmentally sound rather than fight over uh, metaphors and and things like that that aren't really uh, valid grounds for argument. That's uh, sage advice. Thank you for that, sir. Listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. As we end every episode, cheers, prost, lachaim, kipis, nastravi, salud, kampai, mabruk, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastrovie, vo, salute, and saudi to the customer experience. Hey, listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. If you are enjoying the show, I would greatly appreciate if you could rate and review Wisco Weekly on Apple Podcasts. Every rating and every review is vital to the success of the show. So please take a moment, rate, review on Apple Podcasts. I greatly appreciate it. Wisco Weekly is proudly supported by Automotive Mastermind. Automotive Mastermind is the leading predictive analytics and email marketing automation company in the automotive space. Visit them at automotivemastermind.com. And don't forget to visit the episode page to get all relevant links to this particular episode. Thanks all for tuning in. Have a great, happy holiday season. I will talk to you very, very soon.